Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Plum Peeps. Today, Firf and I are extremely excited to be bringing you back another one of our favorite series of episodes, which is our Fellows Case Files. Firf, how are you doing today? Hopefully staying warm. I think it's snowing for those of us in the Northeast today, but hopefully you're staying safe. Yeah, if it's not snowing, we're at least huddled inside. It's uh, this cold spell that's going all across. But I have a nice coat now that my wife made me get when we moved to Boston. So I feel nice and bundled up. Yeah, I'm super excited to be back. I love Fellows Case Files. Just for everyone who's listening who hasn't heard one before, we like to just go around the country virtually talking to fellows and program directors from different programs. And today we're super lucky because our fellow is also associate editor of ours who started with us when he was a resident. So we're like, it's a double banger episode. We're very excited for it. Exactly. So excited for the episode and specifically for this case. And just as a reminder, anyone listening today, if you have a great case that you'd like to come on and share, definitely reach out to us at homepeeps.com and we'll get back to you and love to hear it. We just definitely want to hear from um, amazing educators across the country. But now, just to get things started, we're continuing our Plum Peeps national tour down south to Emory University in Atlanta. Yeah, and the familiar voice that you're going to hear today is uh, Luke Hedrick. Luke is a first-year pulmonary and critical care fellow at Emory University. He did his internal medicine residency at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. He has been helping us walk through all of the pulmonary literature that there is and dissecting in our rapid-fire journal clubs. And today, he's here with a case that he's seen. Uh, Luke, thanks for being back on the show. Thanks, y'all. Always happy to be on the pod. Yeah, and I feel like the Rapid Fire Journal Clubs are, are, are great. They're short um, and sweet and to the point, Luke. So thanks for your efforts with that. Uh, and But next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Shireen Alam. Shireen is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Emory University School of Medicine, where she's also the Program Director of both the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship, as well as the Straight Critical Care Medicine Fellowship track. She completed her PCCM training at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, so Shireen is definitely used to the snow, um, which was followed by a sleep medicine fellowship um, at Stanford. Shireen's received multiple teaching awards throughout her career. Shireen and I, act it's the second time I get to see her today. We were on a meeting earlier for the Chess TNT committee, but really just excited and honored to have you join Palm Peeps today. Welcome to the show, Shireen. Before we dive into our case, just a standard disclaimer, this podcast is not meant to be used for specific medical advice. The views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers necessarily. And the case we're presenting today is HIPAA compliant. Some details may have been changed to protect the privacy of our patient. So with that, why don't we dive in? Luke, tell us about this patient. All right. So our patient is a 32-year-old male who's brought in by his coworkers unresponsive. He's a construction worker and was his usual self in the morning at the start of the day. But when they broke for lunch, they noticed he was acting different. His arms were drooping, and while he was initially able to answer yes or no, he soon started babbling, then grunting, then vomited, and became unresponsive. They laid him flat, threw cold water on him because it was 110 degrees and it was humid outside that day, and they brought him to the ED. When they arrive, he's unresponsive and warm to the touch. His vitals are notable for an oral temperature of 105 degrees Fahrenheit. His heart rate's in the 160s with a blood pressure of 76 over 34 and a respirate in the high 30s with an SpO2 of 100% on room air. His exam is relatively unremarkable other than for significant diaphoresis and both bowel and bladder incontinence. Christina, I know this is a relatively brief history, but can you help share your problem representation and what your initial thoughts are? 
Sure. Thanks, Luke. And I think that it was brief, but you did provide some important pieces for us to consider. So I'd start with saying that we have an unresponsive young man with no known history who's presenting with hyperthermia, tachycardia, as well as hypotension. And my initial thought, given these constellation of findings, especially with the history of his temperature being five or about 40.5 degrees Celsius, if you prefer that scale, So I think with that, I'd say heat stroke is definitely high on my differential, but as always in medicine, it's so important to keep a broad differential, especially with such an undifferentiated patient. So other etiologies I'm sure we're all thinking of include meningitis or encephalitis, given his presentation, given his elevated temperature of 40 degrees Celsius, we definitely want to keep hyperthermic toxidromes in the back of our mind, specifically sympathomimetic, anticholinergic poisoning, or serotonin toxicity. And wouldn't forget the endocrinopathies such as thyroid storm or adrenal crisis. And some of the history of potential incontinence that you provided, Luke, also makes me think of potential seizure activity, which may um, be our combination of of some of the above um, that we can definitely go more into. But this is really an important um, patient that we want to get additional information, such as collateral information, um, anything else we can find out from friends or family, um, in particular regarding medical and social history. Yeah, so fortunately, our enterprising intern is able to get in touch with the patient's wife, both to update her on the situation and then also for some collateral. So in terms of a past medical history, details are unfortunately scarce. His wife knows that he's been told he has asthma before and that at some point they were told he had an enlarged heart, but unfortunately, they haven't had insurance and haven't been able to get regular medical care to evaluate things further. In terms of the social history, he doesn't use any recreational drugs and he doesn't smoke. He does drink alcohol, though, usually around 10 to 15 beers per day. He's never had any problems with withdrawal that his wife knows about. And I think that's really important information, Luke, that the team gathered. And I think based on this, reassuring that this is pointing me somewhat away from a toxidrome. But definitely in this, you mentioned some important exam findings already, but tying in the history that we do have along with physical exam findings is going to be important and can help us narrow our differential. And particularly pupils, we want to know, are they dilated? Are they constricted? Skin exam, you mentioned he was diaphoretic, but I think when we're thinking of someone coming in with a heat stroke and elevated temperature, we want to know, is the skin dry or diaphoresis, such as in this case? And are there any associated tremors or clonus? Yeah. And I'll just add with that. I totally agree. It sounds like the history points a little less way from some of the classic toxidromes. That being said, 10 to 15 beers per day certainly has me thinking that's a lot of alcohol. The amount that if somebody doesn't have access to the regular alcohol consumption, they do have one, they're at risk for withdrawal. And certainly if you're very hot with high fevers and your seizure threshold is lowered and you have alcohol withdrawal, I'm like much more on the lookout. And two, you do think about people who have regular alcohol consumption, sometimes drinking things that are different than beer or liquor if they can't get access to it. Just other things that I have on my mind as well. Yeah, those are all all great points. And I think specifically, Christina, about the physical exam here, fortunately, too, along with the reassuring collateral, the physical exam pointed us away from a specific toxidrome. He didn't really fit neatly into one particular. He was hyperthermic and hypotensive. He had dilated pupils, but he was diaphoretic and then didn't have any tremors, clonus, or rigidity, which taken together is less consistent with serotonin, sympathomimetic, or anticholinergic toxicity. So ultimately, when we put his presentation together with his history of hard physical labor on what was a really hot and humid day, 
we make a presumptive diagnosis of heat stroke. Yeah, this is one of those uh, times in critical care medicine we have where you're going to have to act quickly. He certainly is very sick going on. And while we consider these things, I'm sure there's lab testing that we send out. If you do your spot exam, you have to make a diagnosis, run with it, some initial treatments for stabilization and care. Uh, Shereen, I don't see a lot of heat stroke up in Boston. And even when it gets hot, usually not so much of an issue, but I'm sure that you guys see it a little bit more often. Can you walk us through maybe your initial approach to these types of cases and how you're going to stabilize a patient who comes in like this? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So I, I definitely initially agree with having a broad initial differential diagnosis that Christina and Luke both mentioned. Really often for exertional cases like this one, the diagnosis is pretty obvious based on the history, but it's worth thinking about all those things because otherwise you'll miss them. And ingestions and endocrinopathies and CNS disease can all make patients more susceptible to the heat stroke and maybe playing a role or maybe complicating factors in the hospitalization. So in general, the heat, a heat stroke is a disease caused by an imbalance of heat generation and heat clearance. And it's clinically defined as the following three things. Number one is the presence of hyperthermia, usually with a temperature of more than either 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius, along with number two, central nervous system dysfunction. So this can be altered mental status, combativeness, ataxia, seizure, all the way to coma. And the third factor is that the hyperthermia and the CNS dysfunction are caused primarily by exertion or exposure. And so that last idea is basically, the point is that your patient could have an encephalitis causing hyperthermia without a significant heat load. And so this is not a heat stroke, obviously. In this patient, it seems like pretty clear that it is there is an exposure and it is a heat stroke. So in terms of management, as Dave said, the highest priority by far is to cool the patient as quickly as possible because it will minimize the long-term complications and the onset of organ failures, uh, which we may get into a little bit later. Uh, in fact, for exertional heat strokes that we often see in marathon runners, athletes, uh, cooling really takes priority even over transportation to a hospital and should be started in the field and continued during transportation. Thanks so much, Shireen. And one just follow-up question, and I really like the teaching point that you brought up. Without this exposure or heat load, we can't say it's heat stroke, as you mentioned. And this specific patient, the heat itself is causing the issue. And as you mentioned, cooling patients off is a really time-sensitive intervention. And I'm wondering if you can describe for listeners today what a, a general approach that you like to take for cooling your patients. Yeah, so th there are a few ways to cool a patient. And the main one is, or the more effective, the most effective one is surface cooling. So the quick, quickest way really to cool a patient with heat stroke is immersion in a tub full of ice water. So the immersion in cold water maximizes the surface area that's available for cooling, and it's the most effective way to cool a person down. But not a lot of ICUs or emergency rooms have an immersion tub with cold water. So if you don't have that, there are other some, uh, creative ways to try and recreate this to maximize surface cooling. One way is to place a patient in a body bag and then fill the bag with ice and water to create a form of makeshift uh, ice bath. Another way that's frequently recommended in the field and that can be used in the hospital as well is called the TACO method, which stands for TARP-assisted cooling oscillation. 
the patient is basically placed on a tarp or a plastic sheet and the corners are held up to form a sling. And then the patient is covered in ice water and the tarp is slowly moved back and forth to cool the patient. The least effective is evaporative cooling, which is where you mist the patient to get them wet or put uh, wet rags on them and take them off as quickly as possible and then run fans in the room. This method is less effective than immersion methods, obviously, and it's least effective if you're in a humid environment. Hmm. I love that cold taco, like that pres prescribe this to, to ice somebody off. I also can think of very few things that would be more dramatic than putting someone in a body bag full of ice and water as effective as a strategy uh, as it is. It's, these are all really interesting and, and you got to make do with what you have there and the resources you have to cool people as quickly as possible. So all of those are some techniques you talked about mostly for surface cooling. I know that we sometimes think about other strategies uh, for cooling. Do you mind exploring some of those as well? Yeah, so definitely another common adjunct used for heat stroke is giving patients refrigerated intravenous fluids, usually around four degrees Celsius. That's especially useful because with exertional heat stroke, patients are often hypovolemic. They've been in the heat for a long time. They've been sweating. That is adjunct IV fluids can help with their cooling, but it definitely does not replace the need for surface cooling as well. It's also important to note if the patient starts sh shivering while you cool them down because the muscle contra contractions can generate more heat and can increase the risk of de developing rhabdomyolysis. And then finally, your big picture goal is getting the patient to a normal temperature as quickly as possible to a normal core temperature or rectal temperature. Uh, usually it's recommended to continue cooling until your core body temperature reaches around 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4 Fahrenheit. And it's also no worth noting that, interestingly, traditional antipyretics that we think about, like aspirin, ac acetaminophen, actually are not recommended. They're not effective because uh, the mechanism of heat generation is different than fever. And they can actually be toxic by worsening coagula coagulopathy in the case of aspirin and then liver injury in the case of acetaminophen. Oh, that's fascinating and a really good point to remember. A, a couple of things I just want to, uh, to add on, a, a great review of things. One, I wouldn't be a, a per, an ECMO enthusiast if I didn't mention that ECMO is one of the fastest ways to heat or warm, so heat or cool someone. That being said, we try not to use it just for that purpose. But if somebody arrests and is on ECMO, then you can use it for that purpose. And then the you mentioned the core temperature. I think this is always a good thing to review when I'm sure it's very difficult to get accurate temperatures on cold and warm patients for uh, core temperatures, the gold standard would be blood temperature from a mixed venous a draw from a PA line, but then rectal temperatures, bladder temperatures, esophageal probes, these are really what we should be going by as opposed to surface temperatures. And then finally, it's just so important to cool these people fast. Like when someone's cold, we want to warm them, but we at least think they have neuroprotection when they're so hypotensive. When someone's warm, this is a really serious situation because they might be hypotensive, they're hypoperfusing, and they just have such a high metabolic brain demand that this is it's so imperative to cool them quickly. Yeah, and so we were not quite as creative and we did not put our patient in a tarp taco. Instead, they had ice packs placed in their groin, their axilla, and then necks as well. And then we ran fans at them. They were also given two liters of cold saline. They were intubated for airway protection and a Foley was placed. And of note, their temperature was 108 degrees Fahrenheit centrally before we really got cooling 
fully going, which just underlines the point you were making there, Dave, about how non-core temps, like the oral temp we got at first, just aren't good enough in these cases. So our patient's vitals improved with cooling and resuscitation. Their heart rate came down to the 120s and the blood pressure increased to the 100s over 60s. And we removed the ice packs and fans once their temp reached 102. Dave, you've mentioned before on an episode that you had some thoughts on the idea of intubation for airway protection, or specifically that old GCS less than eight intubate rhyme. And I'm curious what you think about the decision to intubate here. Yeah, this is really interesting. This is a hot topic right now. I think that the old rhyme, old adage was the GCS less than eight intubate. I think we have been pushing that in especially medical ICUs a lot. In general, if we have patients who are ventilating, they're oxygenating, they have signs that they're protecting their airway, maybe you can do more observation. There was recently a trial of looking at people who came in with acute poisoning, so mostly overdoses, accidental or intentional. And if they had a low GCS, but they were still having signs that they were ventilating, oxygenating appropriately, they got by with using non-invasive positive pressure or just not into and monitoring. And it was a very reasonable and successful strategy. I think the one thing that's come up a lot with that trial is that I, especially for me, as I've been in the ICU is people talking about it when you have someone who's medically ill for other reasons, which is very different than acute poisoning. If someone takes opioids, we have cures for that. We also know that there's a limited time frame when it's going to occur. They maybe don't have the same medical comorbidities that are going on or risk for multi-system organ dysfunction. And so for a patient like this, who comes in with an altered mental status, but also really was in shock when they came in, had some other things that we're probably going to have to do to them with a clinical trajectory. We're not sure exactly what was the inciting event. We still have our broad differential. I have a much lower threshold to intubate in these types of cases. And really in some ways it's for airway protection, and but in some ways it's just taking control of the situation and minimizing some of the other variable factors, adding that uh, sense of control that you have control in the mechanical ventilation. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that explanation. I think while I wish we could summarize a lot of stuff with rhymes like that, it feels like the devil is in most of critical care is in the details here. So for our patient, while we've been cooling and stabilizing him, some labs were sent and have come back. His CBC is normal other than platelets of 140. His chem panel is notable for a sodium of 118 and a creatinine of 1.7, while his LFTs show an ALT and ASD of 35 and 118, respectively. The ALKFOS is normal, and the T-Billy is 1.5. CPK is elevated at 2,800, and a lactate was 4. A VBG was drawn after intubation, and that showed a metabolic acidosis with partial respiratory compensation at 7.2 and 32. Finally, his tox screen is negative. Christina, does anything jump out to you about those? Yeah, Luke, and I think, yeah, definitely some important labs, definitely uh, several abnormal. I think the one that struck me the most was the hyponatremia. And when I, when I remember learning about heat stroke a few years ago, I thought in the traditional learning has been that you actually see hypernatremia first because you see that usually due to inadequate water repletion. Um, however, though, in, in this case, you can see hyponatremia um, with exertional heat stroke or specifically in marathon runners where there can be overcompensation with hypotonic fluid intake. So I think just an important point to remember, you could see either hyper or hyponatremia depending on that the, the heat load and what was going on. We're also seeing what I am presuming acute kidney injury with associated acidosis, as you mentioned, 
and elevated CK, which is not surprising either because these patients can get rhabdo. And I think another thing that also predisposes to rhabdo, we don't have a potassium, at least that was mentioned in this case, but I wouldn't be surprised if this was slightly elevated as well, just from associated muscle breakdown. And the last thing, Luke, I want to comment on is the thrombocytopenia. Now, I know it's mild, it's at 140, but with heat stroke, you can get a variety of coagulopathies. So I think this is going to be really important to monitor. And I wouldn't be surprised if this this level trends down um, over subsequent checks. And interested now, lots of data that uh, we've had so far, vitals, great physical exam, some labs that we've been able to look at as well. But I'm just curious about any diagnostics that have been obtained on the patient, if you're able to get that on him. Yeah, I totally agree. Getting some imaging now that things have been stabilized and is in a good place would be a, a good thing, both for sort of neuroprognostication, seeing uh, how he's doing with his altered mental status, but making sure that there's not other signs of end organ damage or something that triggered this. And this is where I think the discussion always happens in the unit is like, all right, we want to get a scan and should we just scan multiple body parts while we're down there? And I hate to be inexact and I certainly uh, I don't want to just scan everybody all the time, but sometimes someone comes in really critically ill and they're going down for a CT head and they're intubated and I'm going to want to know how to best manage them, I often will sometimes just scan the rest of their body to make sure there's not some infectious source that I'm missing or there's some other etiology. I don't know what you guys uh, think about the empiric full body CT scan. Yeah, we agreed. I think sometimes when folks are as sick as he was, there's risk in moving them down to radiology and make, I would hate to send someone through something like that, where they're away from the unit, they're away from us, they're on a travel vent, they have to use sometimes different pumps in radiology and have them make that trip multiple times if ultimately we end up needing some of the other imaging. And so in this case, we agreed. And he went to radiology on his way up to the unit where he got scanned from stem to stern. The CT head was normal. The CT chest showed bilateral lower lobe consolidations with some surrounding GGOs, or ground glass rather, and his CT abdomen was pretty unremarkable. Unfortunately, basically immediately after arriving in the ICU and getting settled off the stretcher into the ICU bed, the vent starts alarming for low tidal volumes, and you can hear gurgling with every breath. We draw a VBG, and it shows a pH of 7.15 with a PCO2 of 48. So worsening acidosis from less respiratory compensation. Clinically, there's concern about a blown ET tube cuff. And so the decision is made to exchange the endotracheal tube. Sharina, I was hoping you could share your approach to ET tube exchange, because I I feel like this is a relatively uncommon procedure, and it seems like it may be riskier than it looks at first glance. Yes, of course, I agree that an ET tube exchange seems to be a pretty straightforward procedure and does go smoothly most of the time, but it is an airway procedure. And like any airway procedure, it can go wrong. You have to be prepared uh, for that. Uh, Before doing an ET tube exchange, uh, I like to make sure that I have my airway cart available, including a supraglottic device in case we lose the airway for for some reason, and it ends up being a difficult re-intubation. Uh, I also want to have my patient obviously nice and sedated so we can manipulate the airway without them uh, moving or making us lose the airway. I usually have at least one other set of hands there to help. So either a respiratory therapist or another physician or both, ideally. 
And although I've seen this done blindly before, I think it's safest to do it under direct visualization with a video laryngoscope. I use an exchange catheter, but a bougie can also be used in the if the exchange catheter is not available. I measure the ET tube and mark my catheter so it's inserted, so I can insert it right up to the distal tip of the ET tube and not further than that. Then I insert the uh, catheter, the exchange cat catheter through the ET tube under direct visualization with video laryngoscopy, then slide the ET tube out over the catheter while making sure the catheter stays in place in the airway, then slide the new ET tube over the catheter and visualize it going through the cords before sliding the exchange catheter out. Shri and I wish I had you when I was in my first day of fellowship and we tried to do one of these without direct visualization. And as you can imagine, it didn't go great. Uh, the patient did fine, but then you just were intubating again more urgently. So I could not agree more about treating it just like a very bland intubation and having direct visualization. Great. Luke, can you tell us about what happened next? So the ET tube exchange goes smoothly and he's restabilized on the vent. Over the course of the night, the oxygen requirements gradually escalate, and he ultimately lands on an FiO2 of 100%. Additionally, he appears to have a one-minute-long tonic-clonic seizure that's witnessed by his nurse right as you're coming in the next morning before shift change. So you go straight to his room when you get in, and on exam, he's deeply sedated. His temperature is now normal, and when you review the morning labs, the sodium is 126. All right. Thanks, Luke. Yeah, a couple of uh, surprising twists. Like, why is the FiO2 going up to 100% now on someone who came in without any really parenchymal abnormality? So is there some new process going on? And surprised to hear that he had a seizure. I would have expected this earlier in the presentation when he was hyperthermic, specifically when he was 108, that you got on the core temp. Or if his sodium was getting worse, it's actually the reverse. His sodium's improving. He's still hyponatremic, but um, improved from 118 on admission to now 126, as you mentioned. Given that he's normothermic now, sodium's getting better. I just be involved or be concerned that there's another process going on. I work with a population who has low platelet counts. I always have new seizures. I always have new bleed in the back of my mind. So we'll definitely consider getting additional head imaging. And as well as if you're going down in this new FiO2 requirement, do you want to, if it's safe, get additional body imaging as well, but considering an EEG as well as potential lumbar puncture for this patient. Yeah. Yeah. And this is also where on before, like where alcohol withdrawal sneaks up on people. Sometimes they've been here for something else. or they got a new car accident, they're here for trauma. And then all of a sudden day two or three, you're dealing with a, a really serious problem. So something to consider as well. Yeah. And unfortunately EEG wasn't available for another 48 hours. It was Saturday morning and the texts don't come in until Monday morning. The LP had been deferred on presentation because when he was cooled, his mental status seemed to improve. And unfortunately, his platelets now on the morning labs are 25. So we don't feel like we can safely do an LP at the time. And when we try to lighten sedation just to get a neuro exam, he develops really severe dyssynchrony on the ventilator, causing worsening hypoxemia and a dramatic worsening in the acidosis until he's resedated. And so we ultimately settle on an empiric meningitis coverage with some antibiotics and levetiracetam or Keppra for an anti-epileptic. We do scan his head because of that new thrombocytopenia. Unfortunately, we don't see any bleeding. Neurology is consulted and with the inability to get a good neuro exam, they actually recommend transfer to another hospital for an EEG. 
Yeah, this is uh, challenging. It seems like I'm sure everyone was very happy to see that he was improving on initial and then all of a sudden you have a worsening. I think we've talked a lot about it on the show about how critical care and medicine in general is just a very interesting science because you have to make decisions with incomplete information. In many ways, medicine is the science of doing that while you're also pursuing a more definitive answer. So I think treating empirically broadly as you guys were doing seems to be appropriate, but then also always with this eye on getting the certainty I was in a conversation recently and we were talking about like diagnostic nihilism versus diagnostic certainty. Oftentimes we don't always get a firm diagnosis, but I think really doing everything you can to try to get it. So in this case, getting an EEG and then even I agree thrombocytopenia at 25 is tough to do an LP, but like trying to correct anything you can to get that LP eventually and not letting some of those things stand in your way is ultimately the goal. And so unfortunately, our patient's event full morning keeps chugging along. While you're getting off the phone with neurology, you're waved back into the room by his nurse. Now he's in distress, he's tachypnic, he's diaphoretic. Norepinephrine was actually started in the last half hour, and it's now running at 0.1 mics per kg for a map in the low 60s. And his SpO2 is 85% on that 100% FiO2, with a P to F ratio on an ABG that we draw at 57 and when you look at the vent, you notice that the flow scalar doesn't return to zero before the next breath. And it seems like there's a few ineffective triggers. Dave, can you share what you're thinking about with this most recent development? Yeah. So to summarize, you have a patient who's all of a sudden acutely worsening. He's in distress. He's newly tachypnic. He's newly hypotensive and much more severely hypoxemic. And on your vent waveform, you're now seeing your flow not return back to zero. So this is a, a situation that can be really high stress because there's a lot going on. And taking the pause and looking at the ventilator screen and getting what you can from it, I think is huge here. We worry about auto-peep in these cases, right? Patient's more tachypnic. He's breathing quickly. He maybe had some little history of asthma. We could think about whether you have airway disease. I would also definitely be looking at the pressures here. Like have my peak pressures gone up. When the person is not automatic, not fully emptying, they build up auto-peep or gas trapping in the system. This can make ineffective triggering really common because if we think about our trigger, which is usually a flow or a pressure trigger, say it's a, a pressure trigger and we have to generate negative two of pressure. If we are auto-peeping up to a level of eight or something like that, now we have to generate negative 10 before we can trigger a breath. And so this should definitely be high in your differential for that. Additionally, the hypertension and rapidly escalating pressures fits. I want to make sure this patient doesn't have something like a pneumothorax or something newly acute happening, but just from auto people alone, this could happen. We ideally would do an expiratory hold in this case, right? Where you close the ventilator at expiration and measure the pressure to tell you what the true amount of deep intrinsic and extrinsic in the system is. But that can be really tough if someone is asynchronous. So when you have a case like this where you're really high suspicion of auto peep, you really got to try to be able to sedate the patient down, even paralyze sometimes to take control of it. And then one trick that I always learned and just do and has saved me in a few situations is if the pressures are going up and up and this is you're worried about this, you can pop them off the ventilator for a second, compress down on their chest, relieve any auto peep. And if that's really causing the hypotension, you should see their pressure come up right away. Now you're going to put them back on the vent. They're hypoxemic. You have things you have to do. Bagging might make it worse, but at least you have some more diagnostic certainty about what's going on. Yeah, we had the same thoughts. And given that instability you were talking about, we did disconnect him from the vent. We pushed on his chest to let him exhale to get all that air out before ventilating him again. We tinkered with the ventilator settings too, to try to prevent auto peep from happening again. We 
did a little bit of math to get a sense of how much time he would need to exhale, which um, I won't bore all our listeners with, uh, but we adjusted his respiratory rate uh, a little bit. We gave him some albuterol. He has a history of asthma, and so wanted to try to relieve any obstruction that may have been contributing. We increased the tidal volume and then decreased that respiratory rate, as I mentioned, with the goal of maintaining his minute ventilation because acidosis has been a problem we've been working on, but trying to give him more time to exhale. And this helps, all those tweaks help, but they don't totally fix things. And so he's also ultimately switched to a different mode on the ventilator to pressure control, where you can set the inspiratory time or the amount of time that the ventilator is delivering those breaths and shortened that explicitly so that he has more time with the same respiratory rate where he's exhaling and getting that air out. And that works really well for him. And so with those changes and no more auto peep, his SpO2 increases back up to the mid nineties. His FiO2 is able to be weaned down to 50% and his norepinephrine actually comes off entirely. Yeah, that's great, Luke. That's like the classic story and will stick in your head and then you'll have some acute situation and be able to manage that way. You said to not to bore our listeners, but I just want to point out that expiratory time constant is like this super underutilized value. Most of the ventilators will calculate it for you now. Uh, it's usually there's an inspiratory time constant and expiratory time constant. It's the amount of time that you should be able, would ideally need. I think it's to exhale like 65% of your bread volume. Don't quote me on the exact number. And generally we think of things between 0.4 and 0.6 seconds there. But uh, if that's prolonged and asthma, 1.2, 1.3, that's your sign that you really need to slow down your respiratory rate. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. Yeah, look, I thought you were going to walk us through Tau. I, I, I taught a, a course a few weeks ago and it's like Tau's trending. I feel like um, a lot of fellows are, are doing that. I'm sure you are as well as your co-fellows um, over at Emory. But I mean, as you mentioned, auto-peep, it's not always something that may come to the forefront of your mind and obviously high morbidity and mortality if you miss it. So great thing to, to mention and just want to put a plug in. There's a great ATS scholar um, a manuscript that was published last year on how I teach auto peak. We're all educators today on uh, as far as our guest goes, but just want to highlight resources that I think are wonderful that we can all le learn from. But yeah. So great information so far, Luke, and take us away. What else is going on with this guy and the, the case? He ultimately gets sicker again before he gets better, but he does get better in the end. He's now in Uric and he's having overt difficulties with acidosis despite clearing his lactate that he had when he first arrived. Additionally, he slides into overt DIC. That thrombocytopenia that you pointed out earlier, Christina, was a herald of things to come. An HD catheter is placed for acidosis and the DIC is treated with supportive care before he stabilizes and is able to be transferred for an EG and ongoing management. And in the end, he actually does really well. The EEG at the other hospital ultimately does not show seizures. He is on CRT briefly for acidosis, but he starts to make urine on his own and is able to be liberated from dialysis. He's actually extubated just four to five days later and is eventually discharged home after finishing a course of antibiotics. I was not expecting that, but glad that this was the outcome for this patient and lots of, I think, learning and teaching points throughout the case that we were able to go through together. I don't know. I don't know for if you, I was worried for a minute, things may not go well, but again, glad that this outcome um, ended for him like this. And I think that brings us to the end of our case. We'll ask you both in a minute to tell us a little bit more about Emory, but before we get there, just want to make sure we have a, a minute or two just to 
wrap up with our, a takeaway point for listeners. And I can start, and I think, Shereen, I really liked how you earlier in the initial management and cooling, how you brought up traditional antipyretics with acetaminophen and aspirin aren't actually helpful in these cases because the mechanism of hyperthermia is different and actually can be harmful. For what, what about you? What are you thinking? Yeah, I love that one. That, that's a great one. I, I, I was worried the, about for the patient as well, though. He was in Luke's capable hands, so I felt pretty confident that he was going to do okay. I, I'm just going to hammer on the same one that we talked about and that Luke did in this situation, which is great, is if you have a suspicion for autopeep and the patient is hemodynamically unstable, it is worth that trial of popping them off the vent and seeing if you can get rid of the uh, peep, the uh, in, uh, intrinsic peep. And if their pressures improve, then you know what you have to do and it really guides your therapy going forward. And if they don't, then you start looking for other things. Luke, something that you were going to awesome. remember from this case? Yeah, I really like the tarp taco for cooling. If you don't have an immersive ice bath, I think in this case, ultimately he did well, but I wonder whether we would have been able to prevent some of the delayed complications of the heat stroke, like the DIC and some of the renal failure that he developed, if we had been able to be even more aggressive with cooling him down. We used ice packs and fans and that and cold saline, which cooled him down quickly, but minutes really do matter in these cases. And so that's something I'm going to file away. Yeah. All these awesome. are really great take-home points. Great take-home points. I will say mine is that a tube exchange procedure can be can look pretty straightforward, but it should be taken seriously. Like another airway procedure, you have to be fully prepared for things to go wrong if they go wrong, and then use video laryngoscopy for extra safety. Yeah, that's really great. That's something I, I learned that learned the hard way, and will always remember. So I'm glad. Hopefully, our listeners won't have that same lesson. This was a great uh, fellows case files. We love doing these and we love hearing about programs uh, all across the country. So we were hoping that you guys could tell us a little bit about Emory, uh, what you love about working there, a little about the fellowship there, things about the hospital, anything that stands out to you. Uh, Luke, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, I'd say the first thing that I really love about Emory is the people. I know this is a cheesy response, but everyone here is really collegial and welcoming. And all the faculty have been really committed to fellow level education and career development, which is great. I'd also say that a relatively unique thing that I appreciate about our program is the diversity of the training. So we rotate at five different sites, which are all pretty different from each other. There's a big quaternary referral center, a county safety net hospital, a big VA, and then two community affiliates that have a semi-private practice model. And so while yes, that does mean we get to see a huge variety of patients, it also means that I get to learn from attendings who are working in very different systems and I get exposure to the real breadth of potential career paths that you can have with Pomcret. I love it. That's awesome. Shereen? Yeah, uh, thanks. First, thank you, Luke. One of the things that makes my uh, job easier to, is to have great fellows like like Luke in our program. The two things that I usually say set our programs apart are, number one, the diversity of our training, which Luke just mentioned. But number two is our commitment to career development. So Emory uh, offers different tracks to fellows once they join our fellowship. And our goal is really to tailor their training to meet their long-term career goals, whether it's through research training or through pursuing different clinical expertise tracks within our field. We have a dedicated career development committee within our fellowship whose main goal is basically to guide fellows in their decisions about 
their careers and their chosen tracks, and then supports them throughout their fellowship by providing guidance and advice about the important milestones and the available opportunities that will allow each of them to distinguish themselves into their own area of interest and expertise. Wow, it's amazing. That's the type of guidance I wish you could have forever. <laughs> I know. That sounds so great. Just such a breath of training and opportunities that you get. I think Firf and I talk, we joke, but one day we're going to do it. I feel like Firf and I are just going to rent like a full peeps van and we're just going to go to all of the programs and, and do a, a national tour one summer. Firf will we'll have to start planning that, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show and bringing such an interesting case to us. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you subscribe and like us wherever you're listening. Follow us on whatever social media platform you like to use these days. And we will see you in two weeks for our next episode. This was episode was written by Luke Hedrick. It was produced and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music's original music by Eric Rogers. Have a good one.